Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Our show today is really going to be interesting. We have two uh, extraordinary women and one extraordinary man. Our first guest is Jennifer Witter. She's a PR practitioner, and she's just uh, released a perfectly uh, wonderful book, The Little Book of Big PR, 100-plus Quick Tips, which I just got to read and I thought was uh, really terrific. Jennifer Welcome to the program. Don, I am so pleased to be on, and thank you so much for your kind words. I do appreciate it. Well, uh, I'm getting too old to remember my lies. So uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we that always start off. <laughs> come a certain age, you don't, don't mind admitting it because you, you, you've earned it with the gray hair. But um uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background before we get into uh, the show itself. Sure. I started in public relations about 30 years ago. I fell into the field. I majored in print journalism when I was in college. And when I graduated, it was in the early 80s, and that was at the time of the, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And uh, I was able to get a job in public relations, and it turned out I had a natural affinity for it, and I just stayed on. And it's been a wonderful, exciting, uh, completely take-your-breath-away kind of career. Couldn't have asked for anything better. And uh, before I started the Borling Group, I was working at Ketchum Public Relations, and while I was there, what was excellent about Ketchum is that they ran each of their accounts like they were mini businesses. And I was absorbing how to run a business, uh, managing people, accounts, and the like, so that when I started my own company, the Borland Group, I already had a grounding in public relations. And the Borland Group is, uh, is now 11 years old. We are a certified woman-owned company and we focus in on corporate visibility. And uh, it's a fully formed S corporation, and I, was, I first started working in the real estate sector, and we brought it out, and now we're industry neutral. And it's been a wild ride, I can say, because within the past 10-plus years, we had uh, 2008 with the collapse of the market, the advent of social media, which has radically changed public relations much more in the past 10 years than in my total 30 years, 
and it really has influenced the way public relations professionals uh, practice the, the field and also how fellow entrepreneurs can use public relations in order to get what I call their unfair share of business building attention. Well, that's terrific. Uh, well, let's then let's start at that point. Uh, our audience, uh, 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 fifty-nine percent of whom are uh, presidents and or owners, uh, mm -hmm. how can they get their unfair share? I love that. That's a great line. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, too, and what I practice is what I preach. And with public relations, back in the day when I started, three-plus decades ago, it was more of a, the icing on the cake. You know, if you had it, it was great. If you didn't have it, you know, some CEOs thought, you know what, that's okay. But what they have realized is that public relations – has to be part of the overall business plan because when there are dips in the market, you still have to go out there and generate revenue. And if you have a very positive, very strong image of your company, it will so much assist you in getting past that hump when the economy dips. And so with public relations, what I say to my clients, and all of them are small businesses, uh, they are – you know, in New York and throughout the country, is focused in on what tactics will best help you. So for entrepreneurs, what they need to do is look at what will help them the most because there are so many things out there within public relations, whether it's media relations, speaking opportunities, social media, that they can choose from. But you need to choose the right tactics that will enable you to achieve your goal. And for every business owner, the ultimate goal is to generate revenue. And public relations will assist you as a part of the overall business plan to help you achieve that goal. For example, I have I've never had someone come up to me and say, I don't want media relations. That's like the nirvana of every entrepreneur, and I can appreciate that. But for some entrepreneurs, some CEOs, they say, I want to be on the Wall Street Journal. I want to be in the Chicago Tribune. I want to be in the San Jose Mercury News. And that's all well and good, but you need to take a step back and see what media outlet is your target market reading. And they may not be reading the Chicago Tribune. What may be most influential to them is Crane's New York Business or the Washington Business Journal. So you need to take a look at the tactic and then break it down and see how you can use that tactic in order to help you get to where you want to be. Well, I love it. All I have to do is just hit one question, and you're off and running. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, no, no, it makes my job that much easier. Uh, but uh, let's talk about some of those tactics, mm -hmm. okay? You, yeah. you, uh, um, I'm a small business. I'm, I'm sitting there. I come to you, and uh, what do I? Uh, what are the questions you ask me, and what is uh, so, what are some of the answers I should be providing you? Okay, well, each answer is specific to the client because in the different industries, it all depends on what you want to achieve. For example, I just got some new business leads. One prospective client wanted to focus in on social media. Another client wanted to focus in on broadcast media. 
So for each business, everything is customized. But the question that I ask you is, what is your objective? What do you want to achieve? And then the second question is, and it may be a little bit startling to some, is what is your budget? Because if you have, let's just say, $1,000 a month to spend on public relations, what I will say to them, it's best to work with a consultant. You can get the value out of that $1,000, but going to a full-service public relations agency is going to cost you a lot more. But if you have a lower budget and you're still committed to working in public relations and getting the benefits of it, it's best to look at uh, a consultant who can provide you with the work that you need to have done within the budget that you need to uh, pay that person. So those are the two key questions. And then the other questions I ask are, have you ever worked with public relations before? Because sometimes people have and they've had some negative or positive experiences. And the other questions I ask is, what do you want public relations to do for your company? Are we part of the whole process? And another question I ask is, do you have the time to commit to PR? A lot of people think they can just give it to the consultant or to the agency and they will do it all. But in the beginning, and some people, some entrepreneurs get uh, a little bit startled by this, is that they have to commit the time to it. And in the beginning, it usually is about 30 or 40% of their time because the company or consultant is ramping up on what they're doing, getting um, the, the program into place, setting up the fundamentals, setting up interviews, and we're going to need more of your time. As the program goes on, we'll need less and less, but in order for a program to succeed, it has, you have to have the participant of the CEO of the entrepreneur. And you also have to be consistent. You can't put it to the side. So it has to be ongoing commitment to the public relations program because if you don't have that commitment, there is no way for the partnership to work. Let me ask you uh, now, um, you, you have a little book of big PR. Mm -hmm. uh, so what are some of the um, tips that you, um, uh, quick tips that you think um, a small, that, that our audience might like to hear? Just give us two or three. Okay. Um, I have one right off the top of my head, and that is social media. And I am passionate about social media. And what makes me want to pull my hair out is the fact that so many entrepreneurs don't engage in it. And, they, and I usually get three reasons, like I, I'm too busy, I'm a private person, it's really not you know, for, for me. And it really is, they're overlooking it. Very quickly, there was a study done by the Social Media Habit. It's a social media research company. And they said 53% of Americans who follow brands in social media are more loyal to those brands. Another study said that users of businesses that have Facebook fan pages spend more money on that business and demonstrate increased loyalty to the company. So if you're not on social media, you are missing out on so much. And so what I say to entrepreneurs out there, look at the different social media tools that uh, will work best for you, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Twitter. 
select one or select two. You can't be all over the place with it. And with those two, I usually say take a look at Facebook and LinkedIn because those are the longer-lived uh, social media tools, and they also bring more uh, positive feedback for those who use it. And then I break it down into how you can use these tools effectively. And for both of them, you need to uh, post regularly so those pages don't go stale. You need to use visuals. You need to use images because they will capture your audience. You need to like and comment on both pages because what you want to do is create a conversation. You want the stickiness to have uh, your your uh, followers to come back and believe in you. And by doing those simple things really helps. And one other tip for social media is uh, something that I share with many of my clients and what I did myself is to post a tip of the week. And what that is is just posting information about your trade that maybe your target don't know about, and they want to get that bit of information. And you would be surprised how many people look forward to those kinds of tips. And the other thing I would suggest, another tip, is speaking engagements. A lot of people have such a fear of public speaking, but they need to get over it because it's a way to get in front of your target audience. It's a way to enhance your credibility. Um, you, if you speak on a panel, there will be other experts there that you can share in what I call the halo effect because if you're so good, it just shows that you're even better in the association of these other individuals. One of my clients, she's done speaking engagements. She's a real estate broker here in New York. And out of one of those speaking engagements, she got a multi-million dollar listing just from one presentation. So for speaking engagements, you can look at local WYMCA's. You can look at libraries. You can look at networking groups. Go in there, suggest a topic prepare for it, uh, invite your clients, invite your staff, and then really go in there and take advantage of that speaking engagement because it has shown that you can get a really strong feedback and revenue in some instances just thanks to those speaking engagements. And then last but not least, I would say another tip in another area is uh, traditional media. Uh, media relations. And I mentioned that I'm always asked about that. And some really quick do's and don'ts with the media, I would say, is that you know reporters are under a lot of stress. So if you go to them and say you can be a regular uh, story source, that it can come to you to bounce ideas off you, if you have different aspects to stories out there, they will start trusting you in order to get the stories pulled together. You need to know the reporter's beats. This is something that has come back to me in my 30 years of being in the business, that reporters get very agitated. Let's just say they cover the automotive industry and they get somebody talking about fashion. <clears throat> Excuse me. That happens. So you have to know the reporter's beat, what they're looking for, get them information that they want, and they really will work with you. A couple of don'ts, what not to do is not to go to multi-reporters at the same outlet with the same pitch. 
I was at a seminar with a New York Post reporter, and he said, you know what, when you do that, it doesn't work because we all talk with each other, and we know that you're sending out the same pitch to all of us. So just pick the reporter who covers the beat and give him the pitch, and we'll get back to you. And then something that sounds like uh, PR 101, but when you send out a pitch, and it's usually done by email, make sure that that pitch, which is what the story is that you want them to cover, no more than two or three paragraphs, make sure that, they, that what you write is, has no misspellings, that the grammar is correct. And again, that sounds very 101, but I've had so many reporters come back to me and say that they just don't read pitches that aren't well written. And they get like three to 400 emails an hour. So if your email doesn't read well, they won't read it at all. So those are a couple of quick tips uh, regarding reaching out to traditional media. I cannot, that last point, you have no idea um, how many times I find misspelled, misdirected yes. um, uh, emails. Uh, I couldn't, uh, couldn't agree with you more. I get over 500 emails a day across my desk, yes. um, probably more than that. And I have mm -hmm. to pick the wheat for the shaft. And the other point I'd like to add, which I'm sure you do, is make the uh, subject line cogent. Yes. I could not agree with that more because you just said you get 500 emails, and you're not going to read something, no matter how great it is, if you think that it's, it's you know, not worthwhile. So in the subject line, I tell entrepreneurs, put in story pitch. Just put it in, like what you're doing. Don't try to dance around it. A radio reporter told me that she was getting these pitches from this particular person, and the subject line was, you will never, ever get another pitch like this again. And that's simply not true. And she knew that, <laughs> you know, and she would just, you know, disregard it. And again, it sounds so 101, but you really have to literally dot your I's and cross your T's in order to get the attention of a reporter like you who has 500 emails coming to him every single solitary day in order to get to the next level, which is talking to you and appearing on your show. Absolutely. Um, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer uh, our next guest, uh, Cynthia Pesci, is uh, 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 waiting to come on. And, uh, but I was wondering if you would stick around. She has a very interesting, uh, she's an event planner, and uh, uh, we asked her on because we wanted to talk about holiday. And I wonder if you could stick around, uh, listen in, and chime in, because one of the topics I wanted to talk about with her is uh, the coming holiday season. Do you have time? I would love to. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I'm now going to... Uh, Cynthia? Good morning. Cynthia? Good morning. Cynthia, you're, you're welcome to the program. Uh, we were just talking with Jennifer uh, Witter. She's the author of a new book, The Little Book of Big PR. But uh, um, you, uh, one of my very favorite places, um, uh, you're the event planner at the Inn of New Hyde Park, and uh, and we wanted you on the program to talk about planning holiday events, uh, how A, companies can make them more effective, 
how can they avoid problems and uh, uh, I thought um, uh, we might make an interesting uh, three-way conversation. So, okay, wonderful. So welcome, good, good morning, program. Jennifer. Good morning, Cynthia. Nice to talk with you. Nice to speak to you, too. Could I just point out a point? Um, uh, whenever I do this with women, they immediately bond. It's very interesting. You just said good morning, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> Guys just say, uh-huh, go ahead. It's a very interesting thing. But uh, uh, anyway, Cynthia, we always ask first a little bit about your back, personal background So before we get into anything else. Okay. Um, well, I've been in the industry uh, since I'm 16, really, uh, all my life. Um, it's, it's the type of business that you have, have to love, I think, because uh, you know, obviously your hours are very different. It's not a nine-to-five type of um, Job. So I started in restaurant, and uh, from there I went to school for hotel restaurant management. And then after having my three children, I got into catering because the schedule worked a little bit better with the family. Um, and I've been in catering all my life. I was a banquet manager for many years. And then I branched out in 2007 to event planning, um, which just really, you know, it, it just broadened my horizons. It was really uh Uh, wonderful. I did it in New York City. Um, I freelanced in uh, many wonderful venues there, and then I found my home here at the Inn at New Hyde Park. Um, I'm event planner here and also general manager. And I've been here for um, almost, it'll be two years December, and well, I love it. Well, um, the holiday season is coming, starting, in fact, uh, um, uh, and uh, Uh, although um, I've seen an interesting statistic that the number of uh, company-sponsored parties has declined each of the last three years. Um, uh, Cynthia, what are some of the um, uh, uh, things that company uh, should th think about and know about before they go into this whole process of creating a, com uh, a holiday party? Well, I think first that it's the goal. It has declined. You're absolutely correct about that. And I think companies need to rethink that because really it's a time to say thank you for your employees' hard work all year. Um, it really helps create camaraderie and build team spirit. And I think, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, such a large expense. And I, I think it's something that really is worthwhile and beneficial to, to any company, no matter how small or how large. But we 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 hear these horror stories about the the um, the boss uh, getting drunk or worse yet, an employee getting drunk. Um, uh, you know, the, we we never hear about the good things that happen. But w what? Are, uh, how do you go about preventing those things? Um, the reason, one of the main reasons I I had you on this program is um, we've had a flood of kind of. Um, Um, emails about this. So I was wondering, tell us a little bit about uh, how you prevent that. Okay, so um, what we are doing here at the Inn at New Hyde Park is um, management does not partake in, does not indulge in alcoholic beverages during the employee company party. We do a separate um, managers event where we say thank you to all our managers. And then at the employee party, managers are really, they're the host. So we'll have managers um, at the door greeting. Um, we'll have managers, to, you know, checking who's driving. 
um, and manages, you know, watching by the bar. I mean, of course, they're, you know, they're there, they're enjoying with the employees, but they're not, um, they're, they're, like I said, we're the host. We're the host for our employees. So that is um, one way. I mean, you know, whenever alcohol is involved, there is always that risk, but I don't think it's a reason to stop having a party. I think that if, as managers, we... You know, we watch carefully. Um, you can avoid that. You know, you know when someone has had too much to drink. Um, you, you know, there are ways to cut people off. And, uh, you know, so again, with, you know, with proper supervision and not indulging along with the employees, but, you know, they're in good spirit, I think it, it helps prevent that. Jennifer, let me ask you a question. Should sure. um, clients be at a company holiday parties? And how can you, and a separate question, how do you um, uh, use that to forward uh, forward your own PR efforts? With all, with my own clients, and I am not a specialist like Cynthia is. I do advise them for holiday parties to invite their clients, and many times they do. And it depends on the industry because sometimes some clients are in competitive fields. But I think overall that to have the clients come in and meet with your staff, and the staff is very well aware that clients are among them, so they'll be even more in their P's and Q's, I think it's a good idea because I think that with uh, consultants such as myself and Cynthia, I position myself not as a vendor but as a partner and that their success is my success. And at the end of the year, to have a holiday party where you're brought in, there's no pressure to buy, to sell, or anything, it's, it's really quite nice. And I know that clients really do appreciate it. And one other thing that we've done is to post it on social media with the clients and the managers or the, the seniors in the, in, the, in the client group just having a nice time and saying thank you, we appreciate having you there. And that really works very, very well. So yes to your question, I think it's a good idea to have clients come on board. It's not going to be a sales pitch. It's just going to be a relaxing way to, to celebrate the season and for the staff to know that there are clients among them. So while they'll have a good time, um, just to keep an eye out for some of those clients. Well, well, let me ask you um, another question on this one, and we'll get back to you, Cynthia, in one minute. Sure. What if um, a, um, a page six incident happens at your company party? What do you do? That's crisis communication. <laughs> As you know, Cynthia had outlined some really strong points about watching uh, with uh, individuals and making sure that there isn't a lot of alcohol because alcohol usually does fuel that. If there is a page six incident, what I say to be prepared is to be as prepared as possible. And before you have that event, you should go through a list of things that might go wrong and how you would approach it. It might be two or three things, and one of them, yes, may be alcohol, and you'll address it. And so every manager there should have that kind of uh, program around so that something happens they can snap into action and minimize whatever damage occurs. Absolutely. Oh, um, Cynthia, uh, Cynthia, how um, um, uh, can you give a couple? Uh, I come to you. I, I'm going to have a, a party for my 25 employees. 
what are some of the nice things you, I can do for them um, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to make this a real nice, uh, nice affair where I'm not uh, breaking the bank? For 25 employees, there's there's a lot of things that um, that you can do. Again, I always you know look at you know what is the what is the goal? Is it to, is it to say thank you? You know, are they invited? To say thank with, you. And are they invited with spouses? Um, you know, well, well, stop right there. One second. Is it better to have spouses than not to have spouses? That's In a very good question. Opinion. That's a very good question. Again, it, it, it does depend on the company, the type of company. I would say, um, I'm going to say generally I think it's better not to have spouses. Um, I think people will socialize more with each other, will reach out a little bit more to people maybe they wouldn't. Um, so, I, you know, I mean, I don't know that it's better or not better, but... Um, I find that uh, company parties, are, I think, are a little more successful when, you know, when it's the, the employees, just the employees. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, um, it's an interesting point. The reason I, I bring it up um, is um, uh, I was just talking to somebody. Um, I, I, I sit on a board, on several boards, and mm-hmm. um, uh, I was talking with the president, and he felt that the his events were better when the wives came. He he, he said because the employees seem to drink less. Uh, in his experience, absolutely, um, I will agree with that. <laughs> well, um, uh, uh, Jennifer, do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I I do agree. I do agree that um, when the spouses are there, there's a little bit more uh, self control. And, um, you know, again, Cynthia is the expert in this area, but that's what I've seen. Well, we're, we're all ex- Well, um, I couldn't throw a party if my life depended on it, but uh, uh, a lot of us. I, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt you, uh, Cynthia, but uh, it, was, it, it was a good question, um, a good uh, uh, thought to explore further. Please give yes. us some other things. Um, that you would recommend. Uh, for instance, would you give a party favor? Do you think that giving out uh, a memento is, uh, adds to the party? Or um, uh, what? Do you, well, you're people, the expert. I think Please people generally me. like um, party favors. What's really great is they have many different types of photo booths now. They have interactive ones. They have um, there's just so many different types of booths, and it's a great favor because it's some, it's a memento that they have. And it's a picture of their, you know, it could be of their team, of several employees. It's it, it's a great favor to have, and there's many ways they have them. You know, you can print out, and the photos can go in a sleeve, a, a bookmark. It could be a magnet. Um, and I think that's a great favor. Um, another great favor is something edible. People love, you know, yeah. food to go. Um, it, it really is, I'd say, probably the most popular favor and the most well-received um, rather than, you know, some type of trinket, an edible favor is, you know, usually people enjoy it very much. Uh, in your experience, uh, giving out awards during the the night, the night, uh, the best salesman of the year, the be- or saleswoman usually is a woman lately. Um, uh, uh, awards at the things. 
or oh, oh and more, equally important, do you have you, in your experience, if you give out the bonuses during during that time, th- does it add to it? Um, I would recommend not giving the bonuses at that time because then I think that comes uh, a f- the focus, and I also would stay away from giving awards out. You know, things like employee of the month or salesman of the year. I, I would I would stay away from that because again it's a time to say thank you to all. Um, I think raffles are great or gift baskets. You know um, you can do raffle prizes. You know tickets to a movie theater, um, manicure, pedicure, things like that. Um, you know because people love any type of competitiveness like that or any type of you know I mean people like to win things. But I wouldn't do awards. You know I would I would gear more towards raffles. And, Cynthia, I totally agree with you regarding the bonuses because that can turn a good party into a bad party really fast. If somebody gets a bonus they're not happy with or that the amounts get circulated among the crowd. And so with bonuses, I'm in total agreement that should be done off-site in the office one-on-one. Yes, yes. Uh, Cynthia, tell us a little bit about the – I love the place, but tell us – a little bit about the inn on the, on the park. The inn at New Hyde Park is, is really, um, it's quite unique. And I, like I said, I've been in the industry for many years. In event planning, I've been in many venues. Um, we have nine different rooms where we can hold events. So anywhere, and, and we have beautiful, beautiful bridal suites that we also do private parties in. So anywhere from 10 to 500 people. Um, and also it's great for any type of progressive party, you know, you can go from one room to another, and the rooms have a different feel. Um, our menu is, you know, we we really like to customize, so, you know, we have certain set menus as a starting point, but we customize our menus. We have uh, many uh, capabilities for corporate audiovisual. Um, it's just, you know, it's a great venue. It, it's quite a surprise because our presence um, on Jericho Time Pike it is not. Um, it's not. Our building goes back. It goes back an entire block. So when you drive down Jericho Turnpike, it doesn't seem as large. And when guests come in, one of the most wonderful things about touring here, our sales staff, we love it because when they come in, they're immediately taken back. And as we tour and we go from room to room and take them back in the building, they just can't believe how large it is. And then the gardens are really quite beautiful too. Um, we hold ceremonies here, indoor and outdoor. Um, so, you know, when we tour, people are really surprised. And we also have our restaurant here, the Brasserie 214, which um, also has several different rooms which can accommodate, you know, different size parties. So it, 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 it's really a lot of fun to work here well, for me. Uh, I, I not, love it. <laughs> uh, well, I should say you're in, uh, on Long Island in New York. We're a national audience. Um, uh, we've had other uh, local venues on. But you have such a great reputation, we, we had to uh, bring you on the program. But let me ask you one more question. What, uh, well, you said a progressive. I assume that means you have the cocktails in one room and then you go into another room uh, for dinner. Is that correct? Am I, yes. Is that what you mean by a progressive? Well, that, that, is, that is one way, but we, we also just, you know, we did a large corporate event where, um, they, you know, networking was a big goal, so we started in one room with cocktails and, uh, you know, one type of menu, and then we went to another room 
for, you know, uh, the entree portion with a different type of setup, having them mingle more. And we did assigned seating there. And then we went to another room for dessert, which was another whole feel. So there's, you know, there's a lot of ways you could do progressive parties. Um, even, you know, with menu, you know, tasting menus are very popular now, too. So there's a lot of ways you can do a progressive event, corporate or social. Well, let me ask you another question. Uh, 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 is it better to pre-assign seats um, so that uh, a manager is, is at uh, a different manager, man, uh, one manager is at one table, another manager at another, and kind of mix it up um, uh, so that uh, there's some sort of uh, uh, mingling uh, Planned mingling. I Again, I would say that. it's always the you know as as the as the host, your goals are really important. So for certain corporate events, uh, assigned seating is absolutely, I would say, um, something very you know, positive. Um, you you know, and you would have certainly managers from your team sitting with different clients, you know, matching them up. Um, and I would say it, it becomes very beneficial. And then certain events, you know, you would not do that. So it really depends on, on your goal and the type of event that you're having. Okay. Um, uh, we have to wrap it up. Uh, I could go on all, all, all hour with you. But uh, uh, Jennifer, how, yes. uh, the name of the, your book again and how people can reach you and how they can buy the book. Oh, thank you. The name of the book is The Little Book of Big PR, 100 Plus Quick Tips to Get Your Small Business Noticed. You can get it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And I am on Twitter. It's at Jennifer TBG. And my first name is spelled funny. It's J-E-N-N-E-F-E-R. And you can always reach me via my uh, email address, which is J Witter, W I T T E R, at the Borland Group.com. And Borland is spelled B as in boy, O R E L A N as in Nancy, B as in dog, group.com. Okay. And Cynthia, how can they reach you and, and your venue or talk to you further? They can go to our website, which is I N N A T N H P.com. Um, for the in at New Hyde Park, they can or they can call us at five one six three five four seven seven nine seven, and I'd be happy to answer. I'll repeat any that again. Five one six. Number again. Sure. Five one six three five four seven seven nine seven. Okay. Uh, thank you both for being on the program, and I I hope I certainly learned a lot today, and I hope our audience did as well. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. And thanks, Cynthia. Thank you, Jennifer, Bye very bye. much. Okay. Bye. Both have a really nice day. Our next guest, Steve Lang, is here to talk about office environment, work environment. Uh, he brings a lot of experience, and I'll let, let him talk about that. But uh, uh, quite frankly, I like the idea of talking to Steve because many of us uh, who have uh, companies have a, a very interesting problem. How do we meld our older employees with these new new employees and give them both the space they need? 
Steve Lang, welcome to the program. Don, thank you very much, and uh, it's a pleasure to be part of your show. Well, uh, Steve, as we ask all our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get into the topic. Certainly, thank you. Uh, I started, uh, went to college outside of Philadelphia and um, finished my uh, graduate degree with an MBA in finance in New York City. Originally started my career with mobile oil, and then I moved uh, to the commercial interiors industry. I spent a few years with a company called Steelcase, uh, and then I left to join the company that I now own. And uh, in 2012, although I've been with the company for 18 years, uh, in 2012 I completed a succession plan uh, with my partner to become the majority owner. Uh, the company, ironically, it was established in 1829, so quite some time ago, uh, originally as a roll-top desk manufacturer in uh, lower Manhattan. And uh, we evolved since uh, today. We're approximately a $100 million company with about 120 employees, and we have a host of products and services that we provide to the commercial interiors industry through uh, large corporate clients and mid-sized businesses in the tri-state area and, uh, frankly, across the country. Well, it's interesting you didn't name your company. That's the first time we've had a president not name the company. So please tell us the name of your company. Well, ironically, our company's name is Danker, Salu, and Douglas. And while it sounds like a law firm, the industry generally knows us as Danker, D-A-N-C-K-E-R. In fact, our website is danker.com. What was the name of the original desk manufacturer? Uh, Yeah, T.G. Salou, Timothy G. Salou, back in 1829. So we've uh, we've kept the Salou name uh, ever since, and the company's obviously gone through a multiple of uh, generation and ownership, and I'm I'm sort of humbled and proud to be uh, the current owner uh, of the firm in uh, in this generation. Well, uh, let me uh, let me digress a minute to talk about that. Do you feel having a tradition like that? Um, helps uh, improve the corporate culture? You know, it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, It's a blessing in that we're a well-established company and we have a valuable reputation in the marketplaces that we serve. Uh, But I will tell you that attracting and retaining some of the younger generation, the Gen X, the Gen Ys, and trying to uh, bring them on board with that history story is frankly much less interesting to them. That, that, that's very interesting, which is a nice segue into uh, one of the topics we wanted to talk to you today about. Um, many companies now have a mix of older employees, uh, middle uh, middle age employees, and and this new generation with many of our oldsters don't understand. How do you go about creating a, a work environment that appeals to all three but enables them to... Um, uh, be most productive. It's a it's really a great question and one that our industry is challenged with every day. Um, and there isn't really one correct answer. But I'll start by framing the idea that you know in the past, uh, maybe a few generations ago, you know you thought of workspace and and the work environment with uh, if you could visualize you know the rigid cubicles, high panels, closed offices, stodgy conference rooms. 
you know, the break rooms were in the back corner where the coffee machine and the water cooler were. And, you know, that worked. You know, back in the, and I'm going to only take us back to the 70s and 80s, but, you know, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, that was the office environment. And today, it really looks vastly different than the past. And, and by that, I mean both in the physical space and the employees that occupy that space. And I think this really started a decade or so ago with uh, some of the dot-coms and the tech startups and social media companies. And many of those companies um, bridged the gap and tried to change the status quo. And now we see some very traditional companies, both in the middle market and large corporations, that are very interested in exploring what space needs to look like today to support effectively, you know, four different generations in the workforce. Well, my next question is, what should it look like, and how do you go about finding it? Yeah, great question. So this is this is the this is the twenty thousand dollar question in our industry, and it starts with there is no one right workplace or work environment for one company, right? It's not a one size fits all. Frankly, it's a range of work settings that support collaborative spaces, open floor plans, you know, better amenities, and making workers on some level feel a little more at home. You know, we're no longer tethered to our desk. So with a mobile device, uh, iPad, cell phone, and the like, you can roam throughout the office, have access to the Internet through Wi-Fi, and be doing work on a couch, on the floor, or at your desk. And you start to integrate some of that technology into the medium in the office, you know, be it whiteboards and technology displays, and now you're collaborating and moving through the space more fluidly. And it's really a way to think about the space differently. We still need privacy. And frankly, an accounting department within an organization needs a level of privacy that may be different than a sales and marketing part of the organization, right? So the range of settings becomes really important. But that being the case, uh, do you lose some of the, of the rigidity of organization by uh, making it such a fluid environment? You know, it, it depends from what perspective you look at. You know, I think in the past we looked at space as an asset to be amortized over time. And I think if if you start to look at it, many of our clients are starting to look at the space, the physical environment they work in, as a strategic tool for organizational growth and effectiveness. They're really effectively measuring the increase in sales, the improved interaction among different employees. Um, how do we reduce redundancies in work and improve cycle times? So these are things that with new data and big data you can measure. You know, it wasn't long ago that an organization, when they wanted collaboration, they put a coffee machine in the corner and, you know, the people that were on the corner or the wing of the building that were sales and marketing people collaborated with the sales and marketing group and the accounting people collaborated with their own accounting group. And when you think about it, the new environment needs to, and new companies and companies in today's environment need to be able to work more fluidly together. And there was an interesting article, actually, it just came out in the Harvard Business Review about, you know, why we, the, the title of the article is Why We Hate Our Offices, and it's actually the, the front page of this month's Harvard Business Review. And it talks a lot about how we measure 
um, improve density, right? How do we um, reclaim some of the real estate or use less of it? And how do we actually use, and this is going to sound crazy, but sociometric badges. So people opt in to wear these badges so that they can capture data on who they're meeting with, how often they interact with people, how often they communicate, and where they're located when they do that. Um, some of the manufacturers in our industry even use things like video ethnography. So, you know, video capturing, um, you know, a clip perhaps every minute to follow the move and trend of people within the space and see where there's a problem and a pinch point and, and where, frankly, the space is supporting and engaging uh, workforce. And, and that is really a trend that the real estate professionals and facility folks in our world are looking at. Well, that's all... all uh, well and good, but I'm a small business uh, person. That most of our audience is. What are some of the takeaways they should get from you in in, in looking at their own environment? The the takeaways are simple. This is not an expensive proposition. This is just rethinking and reframing how you're using your space. Right, taking the panels down a little lower, opening the space up a little bit more creating spaces for people to collaborate. You, know, you think of Starbucks, right? When people walk into a Starbucks, you know, it's just a very casual feel. But why are people sitting with their laptops and their feet up on the chair? Um, again, if you're trying to attract the next generation in your workforce and if you're trying to evolve your culture and grow your business, these are things that you may not be doing but your neighbor or your competitor may be thinking about. And it really can have a vast effect on your culture. Uh, and on the performance of your company. So it is not only for the large business. Frankly, you can do this in five or 10,000 square feet of space. You just have to rethink how you're using the space and rethink the protocols around space about how people move throughout the space. But let me turn into a question. You have older employees. Who, um, uh, for, for me, for example, well, I, I'm a lot older, but I'd be darn uh when I've gone in and, and seen uh, some of these startups and these new companies, et cetera, and I look around and it, uh, I said, if I worked here, I'd be damn uncomfortable. Um, how do you deal with the, with those people who are uh, un, uncomfortable or, or maybe uncomfortable? Maybe so, I'm so universalizing it. No, and I think that's a good a good generalization because that is that is the cultural divide, right? And again, you know, some of the most of the people running the mid and small companies today are are of that baby boomer or maybe even the traditional generation. And they're not used to it and they don't think that way. And that's where I think the range of settings comes in. Listen, you still need privacy, right? But do you need a 10 by 20 office for your privacy? Or can it be a little smaller and can you give back some space to the open plan and to allow that next generation to work differently? Um, you, you know, in the previous generation, I'll say those traditionalists or the baby boomers, and I can loosely define the ranges if you want in terms of age. You know, there's only 12% left of them in the population today, in the working population of the traditionalists. And, you know, by and large, those folks' needs are different, and, and, and clearly I think everyone understands that. But 
you also, as the owner or the responsible for you know, the person responsible for growing the business, needs to perpetuate the organization and think about the next generation. Whether you have your children coming in the business or you know new folks running or helping run the company, they need a different environment. You know, gone are the days when you count the ceiling tiles to figure out what your status is in the organization. You know, the bigger the more ceiling tiles I have, the bigger office I have, and therefore, you know, the more important I am in the company. I'm glad that's happening. Um, I, I'm old enough to have remembered when we counted the, the tiles. Um, and, um, you know, I've worked for some pretty big organizations like McGraw Hill, and uh, uh, there there was a very rigid hierarchy of, of what you couldn't do. But let's let's turn it. You've talked about. Um, uh, and being able, thanks to Wi-Fi, et cetera, to essentially work any place. But what about these organizations like Verizon in, in locations where you don't even have a desk anymore? You only have um, a, a, a cabinet uh, space, uh, uh, one by one cabinet, uh, <coughs> where you put your um, stuff in at night and uh, find a desk in the morning. You know, it's so it's so funny you say that because that is a trend in many of the middle market companies where, you know, we don't have enough desks for everybody because not everyone's in the office all the time. If we have salespeople that are in the field or service people that are in the field, from a real estate perspective, do they really need all that space to be dedicated to every employee when, in fact, all those employees are never in the office at one time other than a, a company meeting or some event? So... From a pure real estate perspective, it's more of an efficient way to look at the business. But you know, think of it too. Think think of your home, and you know, you have a you have a cocktail party or a party at your home. Where do most people collaborate and convene? In the kitchen. And why do they do that? Well, you know, you sort of typically have an island or a bar stool height table or some of the of that nature. You know, clearly there's food service and drinks and coffee and simple things like that. You know, get people to you know, drop the real stodgy environment of, uh, you know, your secretary can call my secretary and we'll have a meeting two weeks from Tuesday. And they quickly get together and share information and ideas that may lead to a whole different way to take the company or that project or that strategy in a new direction that may not have been thought of before. So, you know, listen, I'm with you. I'm, I'm in that baby boomer generation. You know, sounds that you may be a little older than me. But, you know, I think part of the challenge... I'm sorry, part of the challenge as leaders is, you know, we need to perpetuate our organizations and plan for the next generation and, and space and thinking about your physical space in which people work is one way to uh, clearly have an effect on your culture. Well, l let me ask you this question. Uh, there used to be a feeling that if you had a desk or a cubicle, it was your desk, your cubicle. If, if you're destroying... Uh, that uh, sense of ownership, what do you substitute for it? Um, so think of it as this is my space to work rather than my workstation to work at. So if I come to the – and by the way, again, I, I want to phrase uh, – I want to properly frame this, that it is not for everyone. I think the right answer is a range of work settings, some privacy, some open plan, some workstations, depending less on who you are and more about what you do and how you work. So with that in mind, you know, space is um, 
not defined necessarily as your 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 desk or your workstation, but the floor or the wing or the area in which you work. And if you plan the space right, and that's where our industry and companies like ours, I think, do a really nice job of thinking through how to utilize the space in the most effective way, you have a range of settings. So if you have to make a private call to your doctor or to your children, there are non-reservable, we'll call them enclaves, very small uh, private spaces that you don't need a reservation to go in, and they're available to anyone at any time. And you can pop in there and have a quick meeting with two or three people and have privacy, and you can uh, make a quick phone call to your doctor and not be around 12 people that are your colleagues when you're working on a project. Well, you're probably one of the most articulate people we've had on this program about your, your area of expertise, so I, I want to continue because I know this is um, uh, an issue that, that uh, uh, some in our, our audience are facing and many will face uh, over time. What do you see as some of the other trends uh, in, in the workspace environment? You've been very articulate, so I would like to continue. Um, I think as a general sense, I, I, sometimes I call it the Starbucksification of the office. So, you know, lounge seating, um, more collaborative, soft seating environments. The other big trend is, you know, think of the traditional cafeteria. And, and how do and many many mid-size and small corporations as well as large are thinking about that that cafeteria that was the lunchroom in the back corner and and how do we transform that space or how do we take that space and make it the kitchen in your home and what I mean by that is can you move that out into more of an open plan or can you convert your lunch area uh, to more of a work cafe. So again, some soft seating, some tables. Yes, tables and chairs to eat your your sandwich at, but also maybe some technology, some TVs or multimedia, where you know around the food service, around lunch, around a break, you're using that as a way to interact with people on a different level, on more of a social level, um, and using the technology to integrate. I think the other thing is linking technology to the work environment. So things like conference rooms that are reservable through your Outlook database system or whiteboards that are electronic that will capture the information and save it and you'll be able to redeploy or redistribute that information in a moment's notice with the click of a button for where we were on our project last week and that information is then clearly displayed back up. You know, many people are visual learners. I know myself, I'm a visual learner. I have to write things down. I have to draw pictures. And when I write them and when I see the pictures, either on a whiteboard on a wall or in my notes on my, my binder, um, I remember it more. I have better recall of that information, and I can uh, have it at my fingertips when I need it. And um, you know, some people are just very tactile learners, and other people, as I said, in that range, need privacy and need some some time away. And and again, there are private spaces for the folks that need privacy. You know, if you're an HR person, you can't work in an open plan. You can't have a conversation on the phone uh, in an open plan. And, and again, in that range, we would plan the HR um, you know, department or person to have a much different level of privacy, perhaps, than a, a customer service person or something like that. We're talking with Steve Lang, President and CEO of DS&D. Uh, we're, we're talking about space planning, about better utilization of workspace, uh, and how do you integrate the, this multi-generational uh, workforce 
and their differing needs. Uh, could, uh, do you do much work? Uh, we have a, a large segment of our audience that are in the restaurant and service area. Do you have any thoughts on that, on, the, on how uh, configuring restaurants or con configuring service areas that uh, we pass on? To be honest, we don't do a lot of restaurant business. I think that's a market or a niche all to itself. Um, there are a lot of very interesting and unique restaurant designs in you know, some of the places that I frequent. Um, I will tell you that sound uh, is, a, is a common denominator both in restaurants and office. And you asked about some trends earlier. I know in the restaurant business, you know, it's very important. Um, you know, if you have a loud, noisy restaurant, there's a different environment, and you may be attracting a different clientele than a, than a very quiet, concealed restaurant, and you have to think of those things as you plan the space. And there are plenty of really good architects and design firms that work with restaurants uh, and I think do a phenomenal job. But one of the, tr one of the things I think where there's commonality is in, in noise and, and sound transmission. And, you know, in an, in an open plan, the other thing that we think a lot about and, and certainly consult with our clients on is this idea of sound masking or white noise. You know, the more open a space is, the more loud it is, and the more noise transmission, you know, voice transmission of people's conversations and, and phone conversations transfer, and it, it can be counterproductive. So again, when you think about that space, you need to think about it in the holistic sense, not just the furniture per se, but the entire space and, and how it's utilized. You know, when, when we look at privacy in the office, um, you know, we really talk about the acoustical privacy versus the perceived acoustical privacy. You know, it may look private, but I can hear your whole conversation from right outside the door. Or, you know, did we plan the space and build it appropriately so that there really is a level of privacy? Well, um, we recently had on a uh, heating, uh, ventilation, air conditioning uh, executive, and he um, uh, pointed out about... Uh, uh, how important it is to maintain uh, um, a, a temperature level. How do you do? Some people like it cold, some people like it hot. How do you um, uh, account for that? How do you get uh, around that issue? You know, Don, I listened to that uh, podcast and uh, I'm, I'm smiling because. That is a another topic uh, for us that is a hot one. I would tell you from a facilities perspective, folks that manage the facility or have responsibility, you know, for the space in which their people work, major issue of, you know, one of the major issues is people are too hot or too cold. And... Um, that's not an easy one to solve. There are some trends in uh, things like daylight harvesting. You know, how do we give people more access to daylight and, you know, some of the heat that comes from daylight? So can we can we automate the building system to open up the shades or can we do it manually to open up the shades in the day while the sun's shining or pull them down in the evening? And that, obviously, uh, the, the, the HVAC system, the ventilation system, has to be uh, accompanied with that. But that is that is one of the biggest complaints in the office is too hot, too cold. And, uh, you know, different people, again, this is the issue, right? This is the major issue in any building. Uh, different people have different needs, right? One person's too warm, the other person's too cold, and the temperature's exactly the same. But, uh, you, you, but how do you deal, deal with um, you, you, um uh, for instance, uh, years ago, I, I, I shared an office with a man who liked it very hot, and I'm a cold person. 
and we never did resolve it. The only way they finally resolved it was to separate us. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it was one of uh, anyway. That was, uh, but the the point uh, being, uh, uh, do do you make one part of the room hot and one part of the room cold, or colder, hotter, cooler? Uh, uh, yeah. So so maybe out of the scope of this discussion, but when you think about building and building infrastructure. Um, you know, some of the things that clients are talking to us about, now this is more in a new construction environment, take the HVAC system that you traditionally find in the ceiling and put it in the floor through a raised floor. You know, the New York Times building in New York City, again, this is a very large building, but the New York Times building is built on a raised floor with underfloor air and modular power throughout. And what that allows you to do, we have a space that's a kind of a work a workspace and a working showroom for us, and it's also on a raised floor where I'm, where I'm calling you from. And the idea is there are diffusers in the floor, and we can move those diffusers around because the floor is effectively the plenum for the HVAC system. We can move those diffusers around the building to support people that need a little more cooling or a little less cooling, and each diffuser uh, is operated by the user, so you can twist it and open it a bit, or twist it and keep it a little, uh, keep it more closed. So there are some new technologies in terms of building infrastructure that are beginning to address that, you know, at the at the building infrastructure level. But once the building is built and you're occupying it, it's a little more difficult, quite frankly, to start moving diffusers around in the ceiling to accommodate people. It's also very expensive. Um, Steve, you have to come back again and talk some more. This has been one of the more fascinating interviews I've had in a, in a while. So uh, please. Uh, uh, I appreciate it. It's a, it's a hot topic with all of our clients, both small, mid-sized companies and large corporations. And, and I will tell you, while we don't have all the answers, we are certainly in search of the right ones for the right client. If our audience uh, wanted to know more about your company or you, how, how do they do, find you? Uh, they can find us on the web at uh, www.danker.com. That's D-A-N-C-K-E-R.com. Or they can uh, reach us on the phone. Our, our no, uh, phone main line is 908-231-1600. Or they can email me at slang at danker.com. Well, can you spell that out for people? My wife sure. happens to be Lang, to, Lang but she's L-A-I-N-G. Sorry, well, that's not me. So I'm uh, S as in Steve Lang, L-A-N-G, and it's at Danker, D as in David, A-N as in Nancy, C-K-E-R.com. Well, Steve, thank you for a very interesting half hour. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, 
Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.